From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdad. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend and a whole new month, no less. Happy March to ya. This week, we are going to dive into the world of boarding school, wrongful conviction, and true crime podcasts. Yes, we are talking about the book, I Have Some Questions For You by Rebecca Mackay. It was a Nerdette book club pick after it came out in March of last year, and it just came out in paperback. And to celebrate, we are going to take a listen to my conversation with Rebecca. The book is about Bodhi, who is invited back to the fancy boarding school that she attended to teach a class about podcasting. When Bodhi was a student there in the 90s, her former roommate Thalia was murdered and a boarding school staffer, a black man, was convicted of the crime. Rebecca herself was a day student at a boarding school, and her husband teaches English now at the same school that she attended, which means that she lives on the campus of her high school, which means that she has spent a lot of time thinking about why a boarding school is the perfect setting for some drama. Yeah, I think one of the things, there, there's the hothouse element, right? Like everyone kind of trapped mm-hmm. together in the woods, yeah. there's that. I also think there's something really interesting about the the, this kind of permanent, very old place, these buildings that have been there forever, but then this really transitory population coming through, like you're mm-hmm. there for four years, these really formative years of your life. And college is kind of the same way, but, um, you know, but these a, are kids, a, like these are still kids. such children. Yeah, they're you young. Know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, anyone could, you know, yeah, high school is this fundamentally formative time. And, and the years after that are a little different. So, um, yeah, that, that contrast between the permanency of the place and mm. the this fleeting population where it takes up so much of your memory, but you were really only there for a few years. I just think there's something really juicy in that. For sure. Well, and I think when you like the hothouse element, especially when you put them all together over the course of four years, like a lot can go wrong in some very interesting ways, just in terms of plot. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Even, I mean, obviously this is in the extreme. Someone has died, but Mm. this book is about a lot of other stuff and the harassment that might go on, especially in the nineties that went on. uh, Cause we're looking back on 1995 in this book, Mm -hmm. Um, the faculty who, uh, you know, a lot of them are great. Some of them aren't. <laughs> the uh, just, yeah, interpersonal stuff with, you know, people who are not fully formed, um, who are on their own more than most teenagers would be. Yeah. So I mentioned Bodhi's a podcaster. Obviously, we were talking on a podcast. Um, mm-hmm. The story could have just as easily taken place with like a journalism course. Yes. Why podcasts? Yeah. You know, it's funny because, I you know, I started writing the book uh, like started thinking about it like seven years ago, started writing it five years ago. And, um, you know, podcasts were already a big part of our lives. And I think, you know, when I'm talking about the true crime world, which is what we get into here, like this, this kind of online community of sleuths who get over involved in a case like this, um, podcasting made a lot of sense. And and it's since I started writing it, I think there've been a lot of maybe more, maybe like on the more commercial side, which is fun, um, you know, mysteries and stuff that that do involve podcasts. Um, and then uh, it's like, no, I, I wasn't trying to be part of any, you know, any broader thing that was going on here. I just, it just made a lot of sense. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, podcasting is simply, you know, a, a new medium that has 
taken really well to true crime. But of course, the human obsession with true crime goes back to probably, you know, <laughs> deep human history. You look at like the way murder trials were covered in the 20s and it was so lurid and mm. s- sensationalistic and... Um, I keep reminding people, like, they sold souvenirs outside the Lindbergh baby kidnapping trial, right? Like, I mean, that is, that you can say, like, we all have a true crime problem or obsession. At least we're not, I mean, for the most part, not doing things like that. I think we're a little more responsible. But but podcasting is, you know, where a lot of these things have taken off, uh, as well as just Reddit is a big part of the book. Mm -hmm. Um, Twitter is a big part of the book. These are just, I wasn't trying to be super contemporary, but I'm writing a novel set now. I'm just being realist. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because often, you know, as a person who has been making a podcast now for almost 10 years, I, sometimes it can be a deal breaker for me in a story because when it's not well-researched, it's like, oh my God, please just stop. You know, there was this one a couple (laughs) of years ago, I'm not going to name the title, but it was like (laughs) this woman, I think she was like trying to figure out a cold case that she was, you know, tangentially involved in, but she ended up figuring out who did it and being on the run from that person and still making the podcast. <laughs> and it was just like, what is happening? It drove me nuts. Oh, God. Well, you know, she had like a portable mic. <laughs> really Don't good headphones. Justify it, Rebecca. <laughs> I have no idea. I've not read the book. Um, yeah, no, that seems really silly. It's, it's that thing, like one of the reasons I do so much research on anything when I write is like nothing. If you know a topic, nothing takes you out of the book faster. Yes. Than someone getting those details wrong. Yes, it's and such a bummer. Yeah. For me, one of the things is, you know, I taught elementary school for 12 years. Mm. And when people just get child development stages wrong, yes. like they'll just be wildly off on someone's age. Like there's an eight-year-old bragging that she can count to a hundred, and you're like, uh, mm. I, I I mean, and, and not, you know, not a kid with like, you know, different learning skills. Like, it's like, that's, that's not, that's not quite right. Yeah. Um, and it just, it's, it's like, okay. And then I, I, it kind of burns a hole in the book, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it really does. So you mentioned true crime. I think in a lot of ways, this book is subverting that drama, that uh, the genre I think about, you know, I mean, this book is about a dead white girl. It's about wrongful convictions and figuring out who did what. It's also really self-aware in a way that I think a lot of true crime isn't. Right. Um, and this is, you know, what one of the things that helps, of course, is I'm not writing true crime. I'm writing fictional crime. Yeah. But it is, it does concern um, the true crime world. Uh, and no, this is, I mean, this is definitely not just trying to dip into that pool and roll around in it. This is um, <laughs> like, this is really questioning every aspect of, you know, what cases do we get obsessive about? What ca- cases capture the public imagination? Why? Um, You're taking a sample and putting and- it in a Petri dish. Right. And, you know, and and then taking a case like that, the project of the book is really to say, okay, let's look at the case where it is the beautiful, young, wealthy girl um, who who dies. Um, Let's look at that. Let's actually take that. You want to talk about that? Let's talk about it. Let's look Mm -hmm. at it through a hyper realist lens. How is this attention affecting the case, the witnesses, the family? What is, you know, the underbelly of so much of the, you know, so many of these stories is wrongful incarceration. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we love a story where it's like, oh, they got the guy and he's been in prison ever since. And, you know, we have this, uh, you know, alarming number of 
um, false convictions. That's and that's just the ones we can that we know for sure are false mm-hmm. convictions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in this country, they disproportionately affect black men. Um, so, like, you know, we you want to talk about it? Like, if this is the kind of case we like to talk about it, let's actually talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's you know, that's a lot of what the book is doing. So, you have a couple of really interesting devices in this book. One of them is. Well, so I should say a lot of this book takes place in the years before the pandemic when we were encountering a lot of different Me Too stories. And this thing comes up several times in the book where it obliquely mentions a number of different incidents instead of one specific one. I found it really affecting. And there's actually, you know, it happens in the very beginning of the book as well. Would you be willing to read that for us? Yeah, I'll just read like the first, you know, like five paragraphs, which are three of them are very, very short. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, this is the beginning of the book. You've heard of her, I say. A challenge, an assurance, to the woman on the neighboring hotel bar stool who's made the mistake of striking up a conversation, to the dentist who runs out of questions about my kids and asks what I've been up to myself. Sometimes they know her right away. Sometimes they ask, wasn't that the one where the guy kept her in the basement? No, no, it was not. Wasn't it with the one where she was stabbed in? No. The one where she got in a cab with different girl. The one where she went to the frat party. The one where he used a stick. The one where he used a hammer. The one where she picked him up from rehab and he, no. The one where he'd been watching her jog every day. The one where she made the mistake of telling him her period was late. The one with the uncle. Wait, the other one with the uncle? No. It was the one with the swimming pool. The one with the alcohol in the, with her hair around, with the guy who confessed to, right, yes. They nod, comforted. By what? My barstool neighbor pulls the celery from her Bloody Mary, crunches down. My dentist asks me to rinse. They work her name in their mouths, their memories. I definitely know that one, they say. Oh, gives me goosebumps. Well, thank you. So that's the, the prologue works that way. There are sections later on where... She's basically like she's watching the news and there Mm -hmm. is this news story that's upsetting her, but she basically refuses to say which one. And she's naming a million of them, you know, at the same time. And they all start with that same the one or maybe it was or maybe it was kind of a similar thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This came about as a solution, honestly, uh, to me for a problem, which was that. I really wanted a news story that was kind of shaking her up. Mm. You know, when there's that thing, when there's a story on the news that just kind of consumes you and upsets you, I didn't want to borrow a real one. I didn't want to take like the Christine Blasey Ford testimony, for instance, because that I wouldn't be able to do it justice. I also didn't want um, to make one up wholesale, you know, and then have to invent all these details for that that would be you know, distracting in another way. So my solution was like, okay, what if it's all of them? (laughs) What if she just refuses to say, and it's just all of them at once? It's, it's, you know, the, the Hollywood stuff and it's the political and it's the Senator and it's the Supreme court justice and it's Mm -hmm. and, 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 um, and so it becomes kind of, um, refrain or, you know, kind of chorus throughout the book. Um, and that prologue is a way of of getting into that mode just a little bit, too. And were those all, I assume they're all real life things that happened, right? No. They're not. Some of them are. Some of them are really recognizable. Some of them are real but obscure. And then some of them I completely made up. Okay. And that kind of felt right to me. It's just this like 
this I didn't want them all to be recognizable. It, it's this idea of like, oh my God, there there are just infinite ones out yeah. there. That this Which kind of are. overwhelming, yeah, this sense of like overwhelm. You know, it's the same way we end up feeling about things like mass shootings or police brutality, where there are the certain stories that stick in your memory. There are the ones that you go, oh my God, I forgot about that one. That's right. How could I forget something that horrific? Yeah. Um, and then there are the ones that you just don't even have mental space for. But it's the it's that glacial like moraine of stuff that just builds up that weighs you down. Um, is what I was trying to trying to get at. After the break, more with Rebecca Mackay on her book. I have some questions for you. So in this book, in general, Bodhi is talking mm-hmm. to someone and it takes a while to figure out who. And I would love yeah. to know if that was always part of the plan. It's a super interesting device. She returns to her high school and she just feels like, you know, this one person is the person that she just kind of imagines watching her. I think we all have that experience, especially, for instance, if you go back to some place you haven't been in a long time, you just kind of, there's a certain person you might imagine watching you. Mm. Maybe it's your past self. Maybe it's someone you've lost, just someone you were there with, and you just kind of feel like they're the person you're narrating your life to in a way. Yeah. Sometimes I say that and people understand right away and sometimes they get blank stares when I say that to people. <laughs> so it might not be everybody. Um, I It was not there from the very beginning. I know that. Um, I The thing is, and this, this is so frustrating, I don't remember <laughs> exactly what happened. The, the thing is you try a lot of stuff. You keep what works. Sure. And I, I know why I kept it. Yeah. Which is that it it just it focuses the narrative. It allows it allowed me to make decisions about what needed to be explained and what didn't. Yeah. And it allowed a focal point for the anger that this narrator feels looking back mm. on the things she put up with and the things she was part of. Yeah. So almost exactly a year ago, actually, the New York Times came out with an article called The Problem with the Pandemic Plot. Yes. And it was about how different authors were kind of wrestling with how and whether to include COVID in their novels. And you're quoted in it. Right. And you talk about how you kind of wrestled with the idea of like, are you just slapping masks on the people in this courthouse? Because part of the novel <laughs> does take place, you know, in, in the midst of COVID. Yeah. Um, I think it's a really, you know, as someone who's read a lot of books over the last couple of years, it's fascinating to see the outcomes of that wrestling. I would just love to hear like how you ended up deciding what you decided to do with COVID. I think it works. I don't think you gloss over it too much. It's definitely still present. It's there. Yeah. Well, so, you know, the first like three quarters of the book are set in 2018. Right. And then they, it, there needed to be the passage of time. And so I'm writing this in 2020, 2021, mm-hmm. and I'm going, oh, I'll just set this last part in 2022 when the pandemic will be completely mm-hmm, over. Right. And I will avoid it that way. <laughs> and then it's late. It's getting like late 21 and I'm editing and I'm like, crap. And I don't yeah. want to move it further into the future because who knows? Yep. And I can't really move it back. because. So I went in to this 2022 section and put face masks on everybody and you're changing these sentences. So it's like, instead of, you know, she smiled, it's like, she seemed to smile Mm, from what I could tell (laughs) from her. Right. Yeah. Um, And then um, I was, you know, I was doing the final edits uh, into the spring of 2022 
And it's the book is really the last part is set in March of 22. And in February of 22, New Hampshire lifted its mask mandate. Mm. So then I went through and I took the masks off of some people, but not others. Right. Um, But a lot of my research was talking to um, a public defender from New Hampshire because I really wanted to get the laws right and the carceral system right and all those things. And she was telling me about these clear kind of plastic masks that people would have to wear in court when they were testifying because the judge and jury wanted to see their mouth. Mm. Like, like just something, you know, like I want to tell if you're lying. Yeah. Um, So things like that. I was like, okay, you know what? I I really want to keep that in. And just the, the delays that in, in getting uh, justice that would happen because of things like COVID and the backup in the court system. It just became a, you know, not a huge focus of the plot, but it is a part of the plot. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much. I feel like I could talk to you for so much longer about this book, but I really appreciate yeah. your time. And it was it was a great read and a really fun conversation. So thank you. Well, thank you. All right, that's it for this week. As I mentioned, that was Rebecca McKay and her book, I Have Some Questions For You, is now out in paperback. That was the March book club selection for us back in 2023, which means there's also a really great discussion of that book that you can hear. If you scroll back in the feed, the episode is called Nerdette Book Club. I have some questions for you discussed. Also, speaking of Nerdat Book Club, you are always invited to participate. Our March book is Martyr by Kaveh Akbar. In April, we are reading Beautyland by Marie-Helene Bertino. Both of those books are already out. And then we've just announced in May, we are going to be reading a short story collection called A Table for Two by Amor Tolls. And I'm really excited for that one as well. That comes out in early April. Nerdette is produced by me and Anna Bauman at WBEZ in Chicago and is part of the NPR Network, and our executive producer is Brendan Banazak. We will see you next week. <laughs>